Before we start the show, if you want more stock talking, check out my newsletter at tinyletter.com slash bbrostoff or visit postcoronastocks.com. You can find me on Twitter at at BMB21. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Stock Talking, an exploration of financial markets in the context of the post-corona world. COVID-19 has changed the way we value equity, debt, and business as a whole. My goal is to find great companies who can thrive in the new normal. I can't wait to get started. All right, welcome to another episode of Stock Talking. Really excited for today's episode. My guest today is an entrepreneur, writer, speaker, and passionate Bitcoiner. Uh, has a huge audience. His article has been read by more than 2 million people online. Uh, Brandon Quidham, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. Happy to be here. Awesome. So I wanted to get started actually by talking a little bit about your backstory. Um, I know your road to kind of getting into crypto and Bitcoin has been pretty interesting. So I'd love to hear kind of how you got started and what uh, excited you about the Bitcoin opportunity. Yeah, definitely. So I first bumped into Bitcoin in 2011, 2012, sometime around there when I was working at Oracle selling enterprise software. And I bumped into it just because I heard some friends talking about this website where you could buy drugs on the internet with this magic internet money. And so that caught my eye. Um, I personally never used a Silk Road, but you know, a few, few arm reaches away. And so, yeah, I was like, wow, what is this thing? How is it possible? Didn't really make sense. Never thought of it as an investment. Um, bumped into it a few more times. Uh, I left Oracle in 2014, did some digital nomading, building some sort of lifestyle businesses. Uh, for three, four years. And during that period, it kept bumping into it, but wasn't really the right time again. And like most people, it took me the third or fourth time bumping into Bitcoin. And that was in 2017. I was watching the price go up. And as we've seen through Bitcoin's history, uh, price going up is the number one driver of adoption. So all of a sudden, everybody's flooding into the market, myself included. Um, yeah, made money in 2017. I thought I was a genius, then realized that everything was going up and I was absolutely not a genius. And I held on to some of those uh, illiquid altcoins a little too long and lost money on those. Um, and then soon after, I was like, whoa, what is this thing? What did I get myself into? Started researching, studying Bitcoin uh, obsessively. My wife would uh, say very, very obsessively, like 15 hours a day type obsessive. And after that period sort of came out of the cave, realizing that I want to re-architect my life around this new thing that I found to be important. And so that thing was Bitcoin. Um, then in 2018, I spent the year uh, working for a website, doing research and just writing. Essentially, I was willing to do anything to break into the industry. Um, did that, parlayed that into a few more jobs. And, and now I work full-time in the industry at a company called Swan which is just a auto automatic DCA program. So you can just set up an auto buy, like I wanna buy $100 a week or whatever plan you want, connect to your bank account, boom, boom, done. Um, and so that's sort of my story. And one more thing to underline there regarding uh, content. I've uh, built a lot of online businesses, so I've been around um, the content side of the internet for quite a while. And what sort of set me off in the industry of why anyone knows my name is um, I also have a history in mycology, so uh, the history of mushrooms and fungi. And this started through foraging. I like cooking. I like the outdoors. And so, um, you know, I spend a lot of time researching that. And what I, what I started to put together was that the architecture of the fungal kingdom, which is sort of like a biological network, you can think of it like the internet, but underground. 
and, and that is the mycelial layer that this, these fungal organisms use. And they actually communicate, they share resources. It's this vibrant underground economy and fully decentralized, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's so many parallels to Bitcoin. And so, you know, I went in the lab again, did some more research and writing and, and put out uh, about 30,000 words on that topic and broken into different sections. Um, and you know, so, yeah, that was sort of my entrance. And um, against my own belief system, the Bitcoin community loved it. And so that was a really nice surprise. Normally, we're talking about economics and game theory and history of money, etc. And all of a sudden, people are like, OK, cool. Bitcoin's a mushroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a great four part series, by the way. I encourage everybody to go check it out. Um, you know, I, I'd love to take a step back and talk about kind of uh, when you were leaving Oracle in 2014. I, I kind of have a similar story. I, I left Wells Fargo in 2014, working for their securities division. I kind of worked for some smaller companies and try some stuff out. So you're doing that. You kind of leave this kind of very corporate type job um, to go do some other stuff, and you know. For over a six-year period, clearly you're thinking about Bitcoin and your opinions changing. So I'd love to hear, like, if those things were at all related. Um, kind of leaving a more corporate job and thinking about this different ecosystem that is it kind of has this crazy parallel with you know what we see in nature. And I think the way you write about Bitcoin and mycelium, there's a lot of interesting parallels. But how did that view kind of form over six years? Yeah, totally. So um, to, to rewind, I was a little entrepreneur from like age five on. Uh, my first business was stealing my parents' beer and soda out of the refrigerator and then selling it door-to-door -to, -door to the neighbors at below cost. Um, then I quickly learned my first lesson, which is that you have to buy your own inventory. It's not all profit because you were stealing the goods from your parents. Um, and you know, I would run lemonade stands and um, all different types of little businesses. So I've always been an entrepreneur. Uh, Bennett, more as an adult, I realized I want to be in business. And I thought that meant corporate business. And so pretty much everything led up to that job at Oracle and things were going well, you know, crushing numbers, getting awards, recognition, all that. And what I realized was that everything I thought I wanted didn't really fill me up. You know, people from the outside were like, wow. And, and on the inside, I was like, this can't be it. And so essentially what I did was I hit pause. I was being groomed for a, a promotion at Oracle. I sort of hit pause on that and went through a yoga teacher training and yoga was something that I was interested in at the time, but nothing too serious. Um, but what ended up happening was I had this juxtaposition of this yoga community, which was very, very different from the typical Oracle sales, uh, sales group there. And so I sort of saw these two positions and um, long story short, I, I had the confidence to, to change the course of my life and sort of turn my back on that previous version of myself and go out and explore and, and do things that um, potentially gave me more satisfaction in life. And around that same time, I bumped into the four hour work week and started learning about online marketing and um, essentially building businesses that don't necessarily require your time. And so then I went uh, backpacked through Asia for a year and then spent uh, a couple more years after that with my wife, just traveling and working. And we built a few successful businesses that um, some, some of which I still own now, I spend a couple hours a week, they pay, you know, a decent amount of money. And so, yeah, through that period, I sort of swung the pendulum towards like the hippie side of myself, like, let's go vagabonding. And then I bumped into Bitcoin and I was like, okay, well, this is uh, something I could dedicate myself to. I believe that the mission that Bitcoin serves is something that's worth my time. And then I got pulled back into startup land. 
And now I'm working a lot and, you know, I'm working for a traditional startup in the Bitcoin space, but it feels like my time is going towards something more important than just getting lost into the machine in corporate America. And so, yeah, so the pendulum swing and back in somewhere in the middle, which I think is a general truism for life and it works for me. The kind of onset of the crypto craze, I think around like 2017 when the price really kind of drove upwards on all the, uh, all the different currencies. I think is what caught a lot of people's interest. And you mentioned that as kind of a time where that, where that spiked your interest too. I kind of want to double click on what happens, you know, after that top kind of blew off and then there was kind of this deflating of the bubble. Like what kept you interested in that point? Because I think a lot of other people just walked away and said, well, this was kind of the flavor of the week thing, uh, but maybe crypto is not here to stay. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so just to set context, um, most people think 2017 was like the one big run up for Bitcoin. Um, but if you look out through its price history in the last 11 years, it was actually the third run up. And each time, I think the first run up went up like 80x, then dropped 80%. The second one went up like 50x, dropped 80%. And 2017, or this next one, uh, sorry, 2017 was about 30x. Um, I could be off slightly on those, but just to set context, it's happened multiple times every time there's this fall. And what most people do is they chase the price and then they don't even know what they bought. It goes down, they all Bitcoin's dead, they leave and whatever. Um, but the people who stay, they end up doing a bit more research. And from my experience, most of the community uh, finds themselves aligned uh, politically with what the implications of Bitcoin may be. And there's a lot of Bitcoin's a lot of things to a lot of different people. But for me, what's the most motivating is that it's our first real chance of taking the money away from the state. And if you look throughout history, gold was sort of this free market money that uh, people all around the world converged on due to the monetary properties that gold has. Uh, most importantly, it would be scarcity. Um, other things like it's recognizable, it's durable over time, things like that. But most importantly, is scarcity. And so gold was this free market money. And then what happened was we decided to allow the state to co-op gold. And that's due to some weaknesses of gold, namely that it's really expensive to verify and it's really expensive per weight. And so what that ends up meaning is that gold gets centralized. You put the gold in the bank and then someone gives you a receipt, the paper claims to gold, which is really convenient to transact with. And so that process essentially co-opted gold's usage as money. Gold, in my opinion, failed. It's sort of this uh, parallel thing. It's clinging to its history, but I don't think gold has a very long future, um, meaning like it could be another couple of generations, but I don't think humans' future is a shiny rock. And so what Bitcoin represents is sort of what gold did, the scarcity, verifiability, durability, all those monetary characteristics. And then it's improved and it's more of a modern version of that. And so gold, you can, uh, gold's really expensive to move around. Bitcoin, you can transfer instantly. You know, you can transfer $100 million more or less instantly around the globe for very cheap. And anyone can verify that the Bitcoin you received is actually Bitcoin um, for, you know, a couple hundred bucks. And that's very different than what gold is. There's a lot of tungsten floating around with gold plates. And so, you know, gold supply is not known. Bitcoin supply is known. Um, so that's me, a long roundabout way of saying gold um, is going to be superseded by Bitcoin, in my belief. And it offers the opportunity to take money away from the state, which I believe is really important. Because if you think about how money is used today, it's extremely politicized. 
um, from the Federal Reserve to what Congress does and what the narratives are and uh, the populace asking for handouts. And it's just a big mess. And not to mention the U.S. uses it as a weapon around the world, imposing sanctions on nations we don't like or saying, hey, Wikilinks, you cannot accept money. And the U.S. government says Visa, PayPal, etc. You may not process transactions to this journalism organization, um, which I'm fundamentally against the state meddling in money. And so, yeah, Bitcoin's free market money. It has the properties. And I think that that's generally a really positive thing for humanity. And so that's more or less why I stuck around. Um, there's a few other tangents we can go down, but yeah, that's, that about sums it up. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I am a holder of gold and have been so for a while. So this is a subject I'm actively thinking about. Uh, I, I'd like to kind of delve more deeply into why you think Bitcoin will outperform gold in the years to come. I definitely recognize some of the advantages of the ecosystem and gold really is symbolic. It's not like there's a huge amount of utility in what it can do day to day. But in terms of how this thesis plays out, um, like what will the signals be that Bitcoin uh, is a better kind of hedge against some of the issues we're talking about um, than gold is? Yeah, good question. Uh, so first of all, I'd like to point to demographics because I think demographics are sort of underappreciated in general looking at investing, especially if you use a little bit longer time horizons, which I do and I think you do as well. And so gold right now, if you look at studies, um, it's not being adopted by millennials. Millennials buy Apple, Tesla, and Bitcoin, right? The most classic things you would think. And so if we just let the millennials take a larger share of capital, as boomers phase out, um, naturally there's gonna be a decline in, in gold and an increase in Bitcoin. So just that alone is enough to um, send the trends in the right direction for Bitcoin. Um, the next question is, I think gold is, gold has an advantage over Bitcoin in the sense that it's known, it has an incredibly long history. And I don't think that's gonna go down very quickly. And so some Bitcoiners will say, yeah, gold's dead because Bitcoin's better. And I think Bitcoin is better, like a 10 or 100x bigger, the improvement needed to actually displace gold. But I think it's going to be a really slow decline. Like if you look in India, for example, they use gold as a store of value. They have these family heirlooms, it's jewelry, but it's jewelry because it's valuable, right? So it stores value over time. And I don't think those groups are necessarily going to flip very quickly. And so I predict more of like a slow decline. Um, the next downside with gold is that I think it's being used right now as a potent, like people are clinging to it, hard money, people are clinging to it as if we're going to go back to a gold standard. So I think some amount of the price of gold is people predicting that in the future. Um, I think that we're going to go through a monetary shakeup here in the next decade where um, we're going to need a new reserve currency. I don't know what that could be. It could be a new bank or it could be return to gold. It could be Bitcoin. It could be something else that I'm not familiar with. Uh, but during that shakeup, I do not think gold will win out as the new global reserve because it puts a restraint on government and government likes the printing press because it allows them to spend at will. And so in my view, gold does not have a future as the global reserve and Bitcoin is better. So it's just a matter of time. And so when I think about it, I used to think that owning Bitcoin would be a hedge against gold. Now I think owning gold would be a hedge against Bitcoin failing. And so if you want to be super conservative, I would do something like in your hard money or scarce asset allocation, I would do 80% Bitcoin, 20% gold or something like that. Um, I personally own a like 1% gold, 99% Bitcoin. And so 
Uh, don't listen to me if you're conservative, but I think that's the right way to allocate. <laughs> I like that strategy. I've actually never heard that before. It's really interesting to hear uh, you know, so someone as kind of pro-Bitcoin as yourself thinking about gold as having a small allocation. Uh, yeah, so we talked a bit about gold versus Bitcoin. Uh, you know, one thing I was looking forward to talking about more was gold, uh, or excuse me, Bitcoin versus stocks. Uh, because you know, for me, I, I'm ultimately focused on investing in the best companies. You know, stocks are most of my portfolio. And I tend to think even in a declining dollar, um, pretty bad macro environment, the best companies will outperform. And there is a way, obviously, to measure kind of that performance, whether it's through gap financials, um, looking at cash flows, you know, figuring out market share, things like that. Um, what kind of makes Bitcoin superior to owning stocks? Because you'd also think in an inflationary environment, um, you know, that companies also would that have hard assets also would uh, appreciate in that scenario. So can you talk a little bit about comparing um, Bitcoin versus stocks? Yeah, I, I think we're going to enter a period now because of so much uh, debt all around the world. It's going to be scooped up by central banks. We're going to watch their balance sheets inflate. And the only way to deal with the debt or the, mo the dominant way we're going to deal with the debt is to devalue the currency. So essentially keeping nominal debt debts, but the real value of the debt will decline through that process. And in that environment, yes, I do think that real estate will continue to rise, especially residential. I think the stock market will continue to go up. But most, what I would point to is that, is that real yield or is the stock market just going up nominally? And one way to compare that is compare the stock market against uh, gold instead of against the dollar. And if you don't account for dividends, the stock market peaked in 2000 or 2001. And so I think that you're right in the sense that the absolute best companies will outperform and they will return a real yield. But I think by and large, the stock market's extremely overbought, overvalued, whatever you want to say. And in this period, I just think that real yields will be pretty low. And so if you want to own equities, like equities are going to come back. I think now is uh, not a very attractive expected returns on equities. Um, however, with Bitcoin, you're looking at a $200 billion asset and that has a lot of upside. And so, you know, if you want to be conservative and you're an equities guy and that's what you know, fine. Um, but don't leave Bitcoin off your portfolio. You know, one, two, five, twenty percent of your portfolio. Um, that's probably enough to carry outsized returns in an equities-based portfolio. And so, um, that's sort of the, the high level. A couple of things we can click on there. But actually, one thing I want to point out is how de-risked Bitcoin has become. Um, recent study from Cambridge said that right now they they estimate about a hundred million total Bitcoin owners around the world, which is from 2008. It was around 25. So a 4x increase in two, three years. That's pretty impressive. Um, ICE owns Bact, which is a futures exchange. So the same com parent company of the New York Stock Exchange owns a Bitcoin exchange. There's a regulated futures market in, at the CME. Uh, Square, Fidelity, all these major banks have stakes. MicroStrategy, a business intelligence publicly traded company, just bought $425 million for the Bitcoin, which is about a third of their uh, valuation. So that's pretty much all in. Pretty much their entire cash treasury is in Bitcoin. Paul Tudor Jones uh, said he's putting 2% assets under management in Bitcoin. And so by and large, it's de-risked. And I think that was a big hurdle for institutional capital and anyone who's allocating. And so I think what we're going to see is 
even tiny allocations from these big capital pools is going to push the price of Bitcoin up tremendously. And we also saw the happening event in May. And in case people aren't familiar with Bitcoin's uh, algorithmic supply, every four years, the new issuance of Bitcoins is cut in half. And so right now, the inflation rate of Bitcoin is around 2%. So it's roughly gold parity. In four years, that will be cut in half again. And so it will be the uh, lowest inflation, hardest asset on the planet. And what we've seen throughout time is that halving cycle, that supply constraint causes a frenzy in the Bitcoin price because there's a shortage in supply. And if demand stays the same, price has to go up. And so um, like Paul Tudor Jones says, he bets on Bitcoin because it's the fastest horse. And I, I believe that. I think uh, Bitcoin's still 50 times smaller than gold. So even if it, you know, even if it's 10% of gold's price, that's a 5x increase in price and that'll carry a portfolio. Yeah, definitely sold on the growth of the asset class and the liquidity. It, it certainly is getting a lot more love from institutional investors. I think one thing I've always tripped up on is how to measure the upside. So traditionally in my equities portfolio, I've taken an approach where I say, well, uh, here are the cash flows we can expect for this company in the future. And there is some risk. So maybe on an expected value basis, there's a 25% chance it returns you know, X dollars. And then there's a 75% chance it goes here. And then you attempt to construct some discounted cash flow analysis that picks a rate and you know, equity investors have kind of this by the book way of, of constructing price targets or, or making upside. Um, with Bitcoin, a couple things. Like I feel like most Bitcoin folks who talk about this usually use supply and demand as a way to reach some type of price target. So, you know, there will be 21 million uh, Bitcoins. They're going to be this level of demand. Um, you can back into a number based on that. I'm wondering how you think about the extent of the upside. Like, are there any good kind of mental models you have to say it trades at 10,000 now, it should trade at like 20,000 at this time period? Yeah, it's a good question. I, th I think it's probably the, the most common question that traditional investors come up to is that valuation models from traditional finance don't really apply to Bitcoin. And I think that that's true. Um, I think another thing tangled up is everybody wants a price target and some corporate uh, controls require that. You know, they need to know what they're modeling it on in order to allocate, et cetera, et cetera. And Bitcoin doesn't really play by those rules. And anyone who says, says there's a model, I think that they're just making up their own model. And that's fine. Like one way to do this would be break Bitcoin into what are the different use cases and what do you expect the, the value of that use case would be at time interval. So you could look at things like I want an offshore account that can't be seized. So like a seizure resistant thing. And if you're in a country where your, your government has capital controls, China, Venezuela, Iran, Argentina, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you might want to have some like black money that can't be seized from your government. And so maybe you could allocate, I don't know, 500 billion for that. Then you might look at um, what is a hedge against the fiat system? Maybe that's worth X. And you can sort of just go down the list and add up the things. And a lot of people do that and they come to a price target. Um, another model that I have to bring up, although I'm somewhat skeptical, is called the stock to flow model which is essentially looking at the uh, supply of new Bitcoins being created relative to the outstanding supply. And so it's sort of the inverse of inflation. It just measures the hardness of the money. And, you know, there's a popular model floating around the internet with pretty charts. And that model um, has been eaten up by a lot of traditional investors because at least it's a model. 
Um, I don't think you should put much stock in it. I think it's, uh, I think it's less of a model and more of just a, a way to look at inflation over time. Um, but the model has been accurate up to this point. Does it have predictive power? I don't think so. Uh, but that model predicts a, a top in the next 24 months at around 288,000. And I think that, you know, forget the model. I think that that's somewhat reasonable based on um, the, the previous cycles. And so you could look at previous cycles and, you know, are we going to go faster this time or slower this time? Um, I see the cycles uh, spreading out. So longer time between peaks and also uh, a little bit higher, a little bit lower highs each time um, in terms of total returns in that cycle. And so, yeah, that, that's a long roundabout way to say there's no good ways to model it. Um, I think what, how I would look at this is, we have the first digital scarce asset, Bitcoin. There's never been scarcity, digital scarcity before. And I think I just need to pause on that because most people don't really think about this. If I email you an image, I took a picture of my dog and sent it to you. Um, I didn't actually send you the picture. I sent you a copy of that picture, right? That's how all the computer internet stuff is set up. What Bitcoin did is it essentially solved that if I send you the dog picture, I no longer have it because I sent it to you. That's the quote double spend problem. And that's what allows these unit Bitcoin units to actually be scarce. Um, there's some more nuance there, but the short answer is it's really scarce and scarcity does really weird thing to, things to humans. It hijacks our brain. And if we assume that humans are uh, inherently greedy, and I don't want to say that it's a bad word. It means I want to make my and my family's a lot in life better. So I do what I can to pursue that goal. And if that's true, so human nature stays the same, money printers going burr, and we're going to keep devaluing the currency side by side with a completely scarce asset. Um, Bitcoin's going to go up a lot. That's what I believe. It's, yeah, I, I had not heard of the stock to flow model and the, the use cases valuation is kind of interesting as well. So I want to check both of those out. Um, a couple of things I want to follow up on. So one is scarcity. And then the second is kind of checking in, be it on a monthly, quarterly, yearly basis as to whether the Bitcoin thesis is still true. But let's go to the scarcity thing first. The scarcity argument I've always found interesting because I feel like a lot of assets can copycat that, right? Like Bitcoin's code base is more or less open source. Um, there definitely have been coins that have tried to essentially copy it and if not improve on it. Um, so what makes the scarcity thesis more true for Bitcoin than it would for other digital coins? Yeah, fantastic question. And um, famous investor Raul Paul, who started Real Vision and Global Macro Investors Newsletter, um, he actually got hung up on that in 2017 and he, he sold all his Bitcoin. And famously in the last couple of years, uh, he came back to Bitcoin after he realized that that thesis was false. And let me kind of break down why that is. So yes, Bitcoin is 100% open source software, you can cop, we can create one together live right now, copy and paste Bitcoin's code. And you know, we make stock talk coin, whatever. Um, but if I tried to sell you stock talk coin for $10,000, even though it's the same code as Bitcoin, you know, would you buy it? <laughs> that's a hard, as much as I love my own podcast, that's a hard reject for me. Right, right, of yeah. course. And because the market doesn't value it. And so the software itself is just one, one element of what makes Bitcoin value. What you can't copy and paste is the network of hardcore believers who hold this currency, who choose to hold this. You can't replicate the liquidity. You can't replicate um, all these different things that surround it. And so 
all these coins that try to copy Bitcoin and try to improve it, um, what we found in the market is that they get squashed. And in 2017, there was a, a contentious split. And so because it's open source, someone can copy the code and try to rally the troops to come onto the new version, right? And what we found so far is that all copycats trend to zero. Uh, Bitcoin Cash was the most popular uh, fork. It, you know, it had a chance in 2017. And now it's worth, I don't know, like 2% of Bitcoin's market cap or something like that. And so the market cap or the, the market speaks here. And what it's saying is that copycats aren't worth anything. And I predict that to continue in the future. And the main thing to think about sort of as a framework, like why is this true, is because money is a network technology. The value of a money increases as there are more participants in the network, right? You obviously want to use money that other people want. That's what money is. And from Austrian economics, they say the most saleable good, meaning what will most people accept? And so from a network perspective, Bitcoin is so far ahead, the brand, the liquidity, the entrepreneurs, all these different things. And so Bitcoin's actually accelerating faster away from its competition, if we can even call it competition. And so common, common thing that gets people flustered, but um, you dig in a little bit deeper and, and there's no second Bitcoin. And I don't think there's a chance of it happening in the future. Yeah, I, I remember. I'm remembering now the 2017 fork. I, I can't recall the dynamics of what happened, but it does remind me of a lot of the software I work on. There are some popular open source libraries where you see people forking it. If it's not as good as the original one, it doesn't get adaptation. I'm wondering though, like, are there improvements? Uh, it, it seemed like the 2017 fork was because the forkers thought there was a potential improvement to be made. Is there any of that happening in the Bitcoin ecosystem now, or is the code more or less stable? Yeah, so I think a couple things here. Uh, one, the, the most important property of a money is trust. And you're trusting that it won't break or that it won't inf be inflated or any of those things. And what Satoshi did when he created Bitcoin, um, a pseudonymous founder, he created Bitcoin and one of his famous quotes about it was that um, history, we, we trust central banks not to inflate the currency and history is filled with breaches of that trust so here's an algorithmic central bank that can't be manipulated by people. That's sort of the, the gift there. And so from that angle, um, Bitcoin can be trusted because the code can't be changed. So you have this fixed supply. And actually, remind me what the question was. Sorry, I just got off on a tangent there. Yeah, so the question, I guess, is at first it'd be nice to refresh what actually happened in 2017. Like, why do people yeah. want to fork Bitcoin and then the next question was, is there a possibility such a thing could happen again? Or are people comfortable with the current state of the Bitcoin code? Yeah. Okay. There you go. That's good. The good point there. So 2017, the divergence was uh, based on two fundamental beliefs on what Bitcoin's good at. And one belief says Bitcoin should be used for payments to buy coffee. It should be this new payment thing with lower fees and fast transactions and will disrupt Visa. Um, the other side said that actually, no, Bitcoin is high powered money or base money. And its value is the fact that its supply is scarce and it can't be politicized. And so what we should do is put it at the base of a financial system and then scale in layers, which is how our current financial system is. 
And so right now, gold is still base money, or you could say uh, reserve treasuries for central banks. And then we can look at uh, M2 and Visa and all these other things as layers on top. They're deferred settlement layers. But Bitcoin's competing against gold as that base, base money. And if you look at the properties of Bitcoin, and it's built on a blockchain, among other technologies, and with that design space, it's never going to compete with Visa. It's a horrible payment network. It's inefficient because you're replicating the ledger of who owns what on millions of computers all around the world. And you do that in order to protect the sanctity of the supply and prevent it from being hacked or changed. And so just based on that alone, Bitcoin is, was always designed to be base money. However, a small contingency in the Bitcoin community thought it was fast, cheap payments. And that narrative came out of the early days in Bitcoin when it was fast, cheap payments because there was no demand to use the network. And so in 2017, they fractured the payment guys made Bitcoin cash. Everybody else stayed on Bitcoin. And for a moment, there was a competition. And now the payment guys network is about 2% of Bitcoin's network. And so the market has spoke. It is base money. Um, it's going for the store of value use case prior to the medium exchange use case. And if you look through economic history or monetary history, when a new money is um, arising in a market, it has to start in a, uh, a collectible phase. We find gold because it's unique and, and rare. And then, holy shit, everybody likes gold and other people want gold. So now we can use it as a store of value. And it's not until a large percentage of market participants own that gold before it starts being used as a medium of exchange. And so it's about the path money takes. And the Bitcoin Cash, the payments guys were fundamentally wrong. The market reflects that. Now, if we fast forward today, um, you know, one thing to think about is Bitcoin is conservative in its protocol layer because you don't want to screw up the money because trust is important. So the base layer software is um, it moves, it, it changes, it evolves, but at a very slow, conservative pace. It's like you're building a spaceship. It's nuclear engineering. You don't want to screw it up. However, on layers above Bitcoin, things that reference the blockchain layer, that's where all the experimentation is. And so we have a payment network on Bitcoin. You can think of it like Visa. It's deferred settlement called the Lightning Network. It's being built out. There'll be all kinds of layers on the side, on the top that extend the ability to use Bitcoin. So it's a little bit easier to use for everyday people. And I think also embedded in your question is, is there a risk of another fork that might disrupt the community? And from that angle, um, there's nothing immediate. Right now, the, the Bitcoin community is um, very, very peaceful and aligned. You know, there's fringe conversations, of course. Um, but in the future, I would say the next civil war, if we want to call it that, would be over privacy versus the sanctity of the supply. So privacy versus verifiability. And without getting too nitty gritty with the software, although you're probably able to keep up with this, I don't know if a, a generic stock audience would. Um, and the debate is essentially, we want privacy in Bitcoin because everybody wants privacy with their money. Of course you want that. However, if you introduce privacy, that comes at a cost. There are design constraints in every system, especially distributed systems. So if you add privacy, uh, what you lose is the ability to easily verify the supply. And the problem with that is most people would rather say, the base layer Bitcoin is not private. It is a public ledger. Anyone can see what happens. And they'd rather have that and put privacy on the deferred payment settlement, you know, layers above Bitcoin. 
And if we do that, we can guarantee the supply stays safe, but privacy is a secondary consideration. And so the privacy people disagree, the supply people, uh, you know, they want the supply to be sanctity. And so I think the supply side of verifying the supply will win. That may or may not come to a head, but I think that would be the next one, probably in the next five, 10 years, if it, if it ever happens. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I mean, I think the lens I'm almost viewing this through is you can kind of view Bitcoin as almost a publicly traded company, albeit one where the shareholders and the directors are anonymous and totally decentralized. And that 2017 split was almost like a really positive earnings report uh, where the market voted in favor of Bitcoin. And what you're bringing up now with uh, supply and, and privacy and kind of some of the concerns there um, feels like another kind of seminal event. Um, the question I was going to ask you earlier is kind of how to track whether your thesis on Bitcoin is correct um, and whether you want to like keep um, keep investing in the asset or potentially invest elsewhere. Um, do you kind of view things like the the ongoing debate right now over privacy as something where um, if it didn't go however you're predicting, you would consider um, being less aggressive investing, investing in other coins? Or I guess what I'm saying is like as Bitcoin itself as a living, breathing organism changes, uh, are there are there changes that would be uh, kind of less kind to the investor thesis here? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so in terms of the privacy and versus verifiability of supply debate, just to put it in context, it's a very, very small issue right now. And I don't foresee this ever coming to a head. I would put if I, if I put odds on it, I would say there's a 20 percent chance in the next five years. This becomes a, a real debate that might fork the network. Um, what I'm optimistic about is that we'll get enough privacy on second layer, third layer payment networks that bolt on to Bitcoin. We're already seeing that. And so I think it's a small, a small concern. But is there anything that would make me concerned? I think the number one thing that would make me concerned is if um, long term holders no longer want to hold Bitcoin. And what's interesting about Bitcoin is that the, the entire economy if we can call it that, on the base layer is public, it's a public ledger. So what people do is they run software and they look at the network and then they make all these cool charts and analysis based on how the coins are moving and how long they're held and all these different things. And what we're seeing right now in this cycle, same thing that happened in three, the two previous cycles, is that long-term holders are hoarding all the coins during the bear market and they're not moving. And so in the last six months, we reached an all-time high of Bitcoin that haven't been moved in more than one year. And so that's just, you know, analytically showing that long-term holders are eating up the supply and they hold it. And then eventually the price gets so high, the long-term holders release a little bit of that supply and buy a house or whatever. And so if that changes, I would be somewhat concerned. Um, also, if we had a sustained price decline of under $1,000 for a period of time, that would be pretty concerning because the security of Bitcoin is connected to the price because the price of, the price of Bitcoin is what the miners receive to do security. And so you can think of that if the price goes up, security goes up. And that's a nice thing, right? Security is flexible with the amount of value stored in the system. But if it was sustained really low for a year or two, um, that would make Bitcoin a little bit more vulnerable. I don't know if I would de-risk it. I think I'm like most hardcore Bitcoiners that I'm, I'm in it to the end. And I think what you'll find with Bitcoin is that the community is uh, somewhat religious about Bitcoin because they do believe it's what humanity needs. 
And so from an investor standpoint, I like to see hardcore evangelical people promoting Bitcoin because they've got really strong hands. Super interesting. Yeah. Uh, I think the minor stuff is, is one thing I want to talk to you about. Um, because I think it's an interesting point that the economics for mining change a lot as the price fluctuates. So obviously low prices, if you're a miner, you know, the economics potentially don't work. Um, for people who are mining today, and I guess you could contrast this with people who are mining years ago, um, what would you need in terms of, you know, top of the line GPU equipment, um, expectations and kind of just resources if you were, if you expected to be profitable mining? Does it depend on the Bitcoin price? Does it depend on the technology? Like what are the factors at play there? Yeah, good question. And I think the mining side of Bitcoin is probably the most misunderstood, um, even amongst Bitcoiners. It's probably like the last thing people dive into. Um, And interesting, it's like the first thing that noobs think about. They're like, oh man, all you do is plug in a computer and you just print free money. Um, And the reality is that the mining uh, network is the most hyper competitive thing on the planet. And so mining is a very, very industrial scale operation. If you're listening to this, you shouldn't be mining. Just throw that out the question, throw that out the window. And what we know about mining is that um, marginal cost equals marginal value. And so whatever it costs you to buy a Bitcoin today on the open market, 10.5 or whatever it is, it on average costs that much to mine it. And so the miners are long Bitcoin inherently. They have to buy all these computers. So they have have specialized, let me back up. They they have to buy specialized computers called ASICs. And these are uh, computers that do one thing only. They just mine Bitcoin. And and so you have a CapEx cost of buying the miners. And then your OpEx cost is how much your energy costs. And that's the most important thing. Uh, Over time, the miners are becoming more commoditized. They're getting a bit more efficient, but eventually those will be more or less commoditized. And it's just a race to find cheap energy. And so you look all around the world, where is Bitcoin being mined? And, you know, there's been different people do different studies, but anywhere between like 30 and 75% of the Bitcoin mining is being done by renewable energies. And the majority of that is coming from stranded or an otherwise wasted energy. So one example would be in China during the wet season, all this rain, and there's all this of uh, this hydroelectricity being produced and there's so much production and there's barely any demand in these rural areas. So these, these energy production companies are wasting energy. It just dies on the vine. And so instead of producing energy that gets wasted, they plug in some Bitcoin miners and they convert that energy into money. And that's happening all around the world. In the U.S. right now, there's a big surge in natural gas waste. And so if you go to oil fields, they're essentially flaring methane. um, And instead of flaring methane, they can convert that into energy to mine Bitcoin. And so we're going to see this all around the world. It's going to transform energy. And what it does is it incentivizes people to find the stranded wasted energy where the cost of that energy approaches zero and plug in a Bitcoin miner. And one more thing I have to mention here is that A lot of people think that Bitcoin mining is going to boil the oceans or it uses as much energy as Ireland, so it's bad or something like that. Um, But that the energy demand that Bitcoin consumes, it has nothing to do. It's not competing with your your housing energy or something like that. You pay way more in your own energy to heat your house than Bitcoin would ever pay. And so what Bitcoin is doing is it's just scooping up all the energy that no one else uses. 
And so although it uses as much energy as Ireland or whatever, it doesn't increase your price. It's not competing with energy with you. And so um, it's not going to be bad for the environment. If, in fact, it's going to be good for the environment, which is a, a long discussion that I don't think we have time for today. <laughs> I actually would love to talk about that, but totally understood. I did not know about the renewable energy, excess energy use case, and that was such a large component of mining operations. Um, are there people still mining for profit? I mean, the one that came to mind that we were kind of emailing about was Riot Blockchain is a, is a public company. It seems like their business model is just mining Bitcoin and then selling it. Um, for the miners who are purely there for profit, like what do their economics look like? Yeah, and I would say that the mining industry is inherently opaque. And so finding information here is challenging, but they, they're all inherently long. And so most people who are inherently long Bitcoin would be potentially ideological, but really they're just capitalists with an opportunity and they're making money on it. And so uh, a company like Riot Blockchain they're they're going to be expending all this capex to buy the machines the machines are going to do the mining it takes let's just say around three to five years in order to make your money back on that capital investment and so i don't know the intricacies of riot but they're not going to be like some magical profitable business they're competing with all the other miners all around the world and at the end of the day, it comes down to what is their energy source? If their energy source is one cent a kilowatt hour, they're profitable. But if it's five to 10 cents kilowatt hour, uh, they're going to be squeezed out. And so that's really the game. Um, another thing to think about is as the price of Bitcoin increases, um, that's more revenue for miners. And so let's say the price doubled today all of a sudden all the miners would be twice as profitable. And what that would do is there's all this latent mining equipment sitting on the sideline because their economics are not profitable at this current price. But if the Bitcoin price doubled, all of a sudden all these new miners will come on and that will eventually find equilibrium with the hash rate. And so you see the price and the hash rate kind of chasing each other and it's up and to the right tremendously, um, but they do stay pretty correlated. Yeah, you basically predicted exactly what my question was going to be, because it does seem like the price in part dictates the profitability based on your hash rate. So like a certain hash rate that looks great um, at price X is terrible at, at price Y. Um, I wonder, because in traditional mining industries, you often see miners strip this out by just locking in prices in the futures market. Um, and like in agriculture too, you know, farmers lock in corn prices at whatever $4 and then they don't care what happens because they have a fixed price. Um, do our miners doing this? Because it seems like you could take out a lot of the risk by just, I don't know if Bitcoin has an active futures market at all. Yeah, it's a good question. So there is a futures market through CME that's uh, pretty liquid. Like it's, it's traded by institutions. It's a big, it's a big market. Um, but I don't actually know the intricacies of each miner. And if you ask someone who knew, I think what the answer would likely be is that miners don't share information generally because everything that they say leaks alpha. And so you have, think of miners as like a million individual businesses with entirely different cost structures and strategies. I think, um, I think the answer is as the mine industry matures and it becomes more financialized, you're gonna see a merging of uh, energy production and mining. Mm -hmm. This could be nuclear, this could be any type of energy production. You can bolt miners to it and any demand that's not being purchased by your consumers, you turn into Bitcoin. 
And so inherently those two industries are going to merge because they're synergistic. And I, I mean, number one, that's fascinating. Like the future of energy will be intimately tied to Bitcoin because there's an economic incentive to do so. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I would say. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, some of the reasons I'm asking these questions are I'm trying to think about the ecosystem as a whole, um, you know, whether that's, uh, that's mining, um, whether that's like pent up demand, I mean, various other factors. I guess like when you're trying to track the story of Bitcoin, is there anything we haven't talked about that you really uh, you really focus on as like a key part of the story? I mean, we talked also about kind of uh, the code and like various forks, uh, but like what are you kind of fixated on uh, on a daily basis in terms of how Bitcoin is uh, is playing out as a protocol? Yeah, good question. Um, the short answer is I spend all my time thinking about this, and so I could I could talk to you for the next ten hours about different things, um, but I think what came to to mind when you ask the question is um, I fundamentally believe that the price of Bitcoin is going to continue to rise. Um, it is a scarce asset that's set up nicely with macro conditions. I think that um, market indicators that I'm seeing are, are positive and so I'm continuing to buy. Everyone I know in Bitcoin land is continuing to buy even if their cost basis is 10x or 100x less than what it is, they're still buying today. And so these are positive signs. And so I, I foresee a massive price rise and I want to see normal people front run the banks because eventually we're going to see the big players move in. Nation states are going to buy Bitcoin to put it on their treasury as a hedge. And if that future is true, I would like to see normal people get a piece of this upside before Bitcoin becomes a little bit more mature and, and the, the, the risk reward um, I mean, I should say the expected returns goes down. And so we're doing this at a company called Swan, which is targeting normal people. It's just a dollar cost average Bitcoin. And that's what I'm mostly passionate about. Um, we're also seeing this in developing nations where think Argentina, Greece, Cyprus, Venezuela, Iran, Turkey, et cetera, where their local currency is not doing so well. And the people are locked into the fate of the decisions of their government. And so if you're watching your savings account hyperinflate, like an ice cube slipping between your fingers, I don't want to see those people go down with a sinking ship that they had nothing to do with. And so I want to see those type of people um, put a little savings into Bitcoin. And so worst case scenario, they're still protected. And so, yeah, that, that's what I'm thinking about most is how do we get Bitcoin in the hands of normal people? Um, tangential to that, how do we get Bitcoin in the hands of powerful people? In the future, we could see nation states saying, hey, Bitcoin, you're getting kind of big now. You're, you know, you're threatening us. And we could see nation states start to push back. And I want to see Bitcoin get too big to fail. And the way it does that is if it's in too many hands or if it's in too many publicly, company, publicly traded companies' balance sheets, you know, if too many politicians own it, et cetera. And so those are kind of the two things. Normal people get a piece. Powerful people with political capital get a piece. If those two do those two things happen, um, it's too big to fail. Yeah, and it also seems like kind of enhancing this effect is there's no shortage of companies that are popping up to either help people invest in in Bitcoin, trade it. Um, you know, Swan obviously is playing a part in it with helping you know, regular people uh, invest money there. So I, I tend to think like there's a high possibility that the next wave of companies could be centered around. Bitcoin. Um, I mean, what comes to mind is an already public company, Square, and their cash app. Um, what's the kind of startup and general public or private company ecosystem look like in this space? And like, how's it, how's it grown in the last couple of years? 
Yeah, definitely. So I want to touch on Square also, but first I'll talk about the general startup space. And the first thing you think about, like, okay, we have this new technology, we have this new money, let's create a startup and capture value, right? Um, the tricky part here is that you're competing against holding Bitcoin, the underlying. And up until now, there's been only like a handful of companies that have returned shareholder value at a rate higher than just holding Bitcoin. And so some point in the future, Bitcoin will reach some sort of a maturity or equilibrium, in which case expected returns will be low. Um, but we're not quite at that point yet. And so if you're going to create a startup, you have to decide, can we outperform Bitcoin? The answer is almost always no. And so think about that. Um, the type of businesses uh, so far that have outperformed Bitcoin have been exchanges. And that's because they make money up and down with Bitcoin's price. And they just scalp on trading. And so uh, those have been inherently the most profitable, the Krakens, the Coinbase, the BitMEX, et cetera. Um, but looking forward, I see, um, I don't know, honestly, and I, I'm biased, right? I work for Swan. I own equity in Swan. I should say Swan's going to outperform Bitcoin, um, and it might, but I, I don't know if it's going to, so I hold Bitcoin also. Um, that's sort of the landscape. And the next question, is, sorry, one more thing there. What we need is basic companies. We need access to Bitcoin, we need Bitcoin custodial services, and we need education. Still in the fundamental stage. Any of the fancy stuff we're not ready for, and it's not as important. So let's get the fundamentals right. We need fiat on and off ramps all over the world. We need basic DCA platforms, and we need secure custody. Um, sprinkle a little bit of usability too, like it should be a little bit easier for grandma to use Bitcoin. And what we're going to see is a bifurcation in the market. There's going to be the custodial solutions. You can go to Fidelity and own some Bitcoin or whatever, or Square's Cash App. And then there will also be the self-custody. And it's always going to be easy to let someone else hold your Bitcoin. But I want to see is an increase in self-custody, meaning normal people control it. They, you know, you, you hold on to your own Bitcoin. And that's why Bitcoin, uh, that's how Bitcoin will stay secure, is when individuals custody their own Bitcoin in which case you can't take it, you can't confiscate it. And that just protects Bitcoin long-term. In a way, we're providing cover fire so Bitcoin can get through the door. Yeah, your, your point about Bitcoin, the asset outperforming most of the companies in the ecosystem in terms of the equity value is, is really interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, it does remind me a bit of how like one of the initial use cases thrown out for Bitcoin was like buying a cup of coffee. And obviously that, that does play into the 2017 fork we talked about in Bitcoin Cash. Is that use case still something people think about? Like it, it seemed like a couple of years ago, um, like eBay and a bunch of other vendors were saying use Bitcoin to purchase goods. Um, or is that not really part of the Bitcoin story anymore? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would say there was this period of time where a lot of companies were saying, hey, we'll accept Bitcoin. And what they found is that most people who held Bitcoin were not willing to give up their Bitcoin. And I think that that's the, the consensus narrative, which is we all think the price is going to go up. It's still a tiny asset, in which case it's logical to put the Bitcoin in your savings and don't think about it until the future. When it increases in market price, sure. When you're overweight Bitcoin in your portfolio, sure, buy some land or whatever. Um, but I don't think people are looking to, to spend anything anytime soon. However, interestingly, the Lightning Network, again, which is, you can think of it like Visa on Bitcoin or a deferred payment network. Um, what that does is it actually introduces about a three to 5% cost savings on retail. And the cost saving comes from 
if I'm a, a store and I sell coffee, um, you come and you buy a coffee and let's say it's two bucks for a coffee. Um, I'm still going to pay three to 5% to a credit card company to process that payment. Right. And generally I just pass it on to the consumer. Um, what's interesting with Bitcoin is you can create a, a point of sale system where I'm actually paying over the lightning network over that deferred settlement layer where the, the transaction cost is like 0.0001%. And so now you have three to 5% to play with in cost savings, which you could keep as a business or pass on to your customers. And so that's an interesting narrative. I think that that actually will start to grow. Companies like uh, Strike and Fold would be two names to look at um, who are working on that now. That being said, I still think it's a, a pretty small market because people want to hold their Bitcoin because they expect the price to go up. Um, one more thing about that before I forget is uh, Square, Cash App, Twitter, and Jack Dorsey. Um, I'm a big fan of Jack. I think he's a great entrepreneur. I think he's got his head in the right place and he owns multiple massive companies. And I just want to run a quick thing, a couple quick things off Square. So Square owns Cash App, which uh, sold $300 million for the Bitcoin last quarter. Um, if you look at their revenue, they're, they're 10 q um, it's just exponential. They're going to be selling so much Bitcoin, it's, it's mind-blowing. And most of their revenue on Cash App now comes from Bitcoin sales. And so that's going to be really important for them. They also have the Square terminals in all these retail stores. And right now they process dollars. In the future, they're probably going to process Bitcoin. Right, they're positioned for it. As soon as there's demand, they can flip a switch. Now everyone accepts Bitcoin. That's interesting. Um, and then Twitter is also interesting where they have this communications platform and there's this political debate right now, which is what role does Twitter play in facilitating a public conversation? Should they censor conversations or should they let all ideas compete in the intellectual marketplace for ideas? And what Jack has expressed is that Twitter doesn't want to be in the middle of that political fight. Instead, what Twitter is going to do is they're developing something called Blue Sky, which is an open source communications protocol. And what's interesting about this is if they pull it off, and it's, it is a long shot to be fair, but they have people working on it, it will be a communications platform, open source protocol, just like Bitcoin. But then Twitter will be a customer or a front end on top of this open source protocol. So then there can be a hundred versions of Twitter, each with different rules on censorship and what they allow. And sort of that will allow a, a public conversation to improve as a, as a species, which I think is important. And they could also integrate lightning network payments into Twitter. So I could uh, pay you a penny every time you tweet because I like what you said or something like that. That infrastructure is laid. And finally with Jack and his squad, they have a, a sub called Square Crypto, which is a, a little like all-star team uh, in the business there where they, they're hiring a bunch of people to work on the open source protocol that is Bitcoin. And they're doing things like design and development and um, fighting some legal copyright battles for the industry. And it's essentially Jack saying, we benefited a lot. We think Bitcoin's good and it's important for the future of humanity. So we're going to allocate some of our very large treasury to helping this thing succeed. And so those are good signals as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it sounds like a super robust network. I wasn't familiar with Lightning Network um, or Blue Sky or Square Crypto for that matter. So kind of like all three of them just seems uh, super bullish. Um, it does bring to mind, uh, I think you've written a bit about Libra and kind of Facebook's exploits there. 
Um, it does seem like there's there's been various discussions about, well, you have these large companies who could probably roll their own coin or, or something like that. Um, the, the use case really where I've heard about is that this could potentially be something that's more exchangeable, uh, more like digital coin that you could use every day and, and wouldn't really see as a store of value. Um, what, I guess, what are your thoughts on Libra? And then my follow-up would be like, is there a place for a digital coin where people don't use it for investing, but just use it for everyday exchange? Yeah, good question. Um, so if anyone doesn't know, Libra is a cryptocurrency project run by Facebook. And the idea there is that, okay, they have a billion users or trillion or however many they have. And they would say, hey, now your Facebook apps are connected and now everyone has this Libra coin and we have a massive user base, so it should be easy to bootstrap money. And that's not wrong. Like that is true. They have the user base to pull something like this off. Um, where it differs from Bitcoin is that any type of Libra, it doesn't inherently have Bitcoin's properties. And the important properties of Bitcoin are the scarcity and the, uh, excuse me, censorship resistance. So if, for example, if Facebook sees you pay a web designer who works on your business from Iran, uh, Facebook's going to censor your transaction, right? They're also going to seize your funds if they don't like you. If the government comes after you, all your Libra coins are stolen. And so while it could replace the dollar in some sort of like a inflationary spyware money coin, um, I don't think that actually hurts Bitcoin. I think what actually would happen is the game theory would play out that people would get comfortable with non-state money. And then they would go, huh, why does Bitcoin keep going up? Why does my Libra buy less every year? Maybe I should trade some Libra for Bitcoin. And I think what it would, I think it would actually undermine its own premise and siphon uh, flow over to Bitcoin. Um, I think that's kind of what I see in the short term. I think a couple of the important points are number one, the US government does not like the idea of Libra and rightfully so. What we're seeing is a, uh, a controversial thing where Silicon Valley is saying, hey, we're big and powerful now, which they are, and now we're gonna run our own money and take money away from the state and give it to Silicon Valley. And so the US government's not comfortable with this, rightfully so, they're gonna fight over this. Um, and so what I see coming up here is a three-way battle for the future of money. The three opposing forces are state money, that's your fiat, your dollars, euros, and yen. You've got corporate money, that's your Libra. And then you've got the people's money, which is Bitcoin. And in the short term, I could see jostling horses trying to get to the finish line. Uh, but in the end, Bitcoin has superior monetary properties. Its survivability has been uh, proven and it, it's really, really hard to change. And so what I think is going to happen is Bitcoin will win because the competition or the incentives align towards Bitcoin. And what's going to happen after that is the world will re architect around this fixed monetary supply and it's actually a really good thing for humanity nation states can trade with this neutral settlement layer instead of us and china fighting over which currency that they have to keep on their balance sheet they should have to keep a neutral currency that's owned and run by the people and i think millennials uh like this idea of everyone's a node it's money run by the people instead of 12 old white guys with white hair deciding the future of the, the planet's money as in the federal reserve man i couldn't agree with you more and i think we could do a whole podcast just on this three-way war um but i know i gotta let you go soon i, I did want to get into this question before we uh head out here 
about how to, um, as a first-time Bitcoin buyer or someone who maybe owns a little bit but wants to own more, um, not only kind of the vehicles that you um, you would recommend to purchase and continue investing, but also like how to continually educate yourself on Bitcoin. Because I think you've made so many good points this podcast about uh, what the economics are like for the miners, um, what the code looks like, you know, uh, use cases and renewable energy. Uh, if people want to keep learning about this stuff and follow the Bitcoin story, what should they do? Yeah, so I'll, I'll do content first and then where to buy it second. Um, so if you're a curious person who found any of this interesting, uh, just know that there is a treasure trove of content in the Bitcoin space waiting for you. I call it catnip for the curious um, there's a never-ending rabbit hole of fascinating little threads to pull on. So come join the Bitcoin community. I think the best place to actually participate is on Twitter. Um, that's where everyone has conversations in open. Most people then write content on Medium. And so Medium is full of good content. But I would caution you to say that there's a lot of really bad content and there's now 7,000 copycat cryptocurrencies and various other projects uh, tangential to the space. And a lot of those people raise money from VC and they have marketing budgets. So they're spending all this nonsense content out also. And so what I would say is uh, start with the basic stuff, like read the Bitcoin standard by Saifedina Moose. Um, that's a book. It's fantastic. You'll get everything you need to know. Um, if you want something shorter, read The Bullish Case for Bitcoin by Vijay Boyapati, which is a great article series. Um, those are the two things I would start with. Um, I can point to you tons of other articles and it's hard to give wholesale recommendations besides those two because it really depends where someone's coming from, what they're interested in. And what I would say and this applies to learning in general is don't learn what someone forces you to learn. Like if you think back in school, whatever your teacher tells you to learn, you may or may not learn it. You might study for the test, but you're not committing that to long-term memory. Instead, study what you're curious about. Read whatever you want related to Bitcoin and just follow your nose because then you'll actually architect a foundation of understanding that builds on itself. You'll commit it to long-term memory and it will be referenceable based on your previous interests. And so follow your nose is the answer. Um, also, my Twitter, uh, my direct messages on Twitter are open. If you find me at bquitem, B-Q-U-I-T-T-E-M, my DMs are open. I'm happy to shuffle content your way. Um, I've read most of it. Um, that's that. Any, any other questions on content yeah. before I go into process and where to buy and stuff? No, that, that was awesome. I guess I just have one quick follow-up. So, you know, thinking about, Stocks, you know, I, I think it's so important not to watch the tape and just to read like 8Ks, 10Qs, 10Ks, um, see what like the management group is saying and like, you know, sell the rumor, buy the news, obviously. Um, with Bitcoin, like there's so much reporting on price movements that I'm sure pisses the hell out of you. Um, like any strategies day to day for ignoring that and figuring out what actually is high signal and low noise? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Um, Bitcoin is still volatile, right? Its volatility is a function primarily of how small the asset is. So again, 50 times smaller than gold. And so a relative small amount of capital can push the price around. And what you see is all this short-term news cycle nonsense. Bitcoin's up 5% because China's weather is bad, or, you know, whatever. Completely disregard any short-term news. If you're buying Bitcoin, think of it as a long-term bet. It is a 10-year-plus bet. Allocate a smallish percentage of your net worth and don't think about it. That's the right approach. And so with that mindset, short-term news is completely noise, and it is. 
And so don't think about it. In terms of strategies on how to get around it, um, that's a little bit harder. I would say follow the right people on Twitter, but then again, who are the right people? That's my opinion. Um, if you, if you reach out to me, I'll, I'll give you like a, the Bitcoin starter kit if you want to start learning. Um, but the real answer is you want to read evergreen information about Bitcoin. I, I implore everyone to invest in themselves. And that means education, learn what this thing is. It's already been 11 years. It's on a rocket ship. It's not going anywhere. So do yourself a favor and learn what it is. And I would also say intimately to that is, um, Humans are rational creatures by and large. Uh, we, we do a lot of irrational things. However, if you want to understand Bitcoin, buy some immediately. Pull out your phone, download Cash App, buy 20 bucks worth of Bitcoin immediately. And what you're going to find is now that you have a little bit of skin in the game, now is when you start to pay attention. And that little bit of motivation is what pretty much everyone needs to learn. Because to be fair, understanding Bitcoin is not easy. Like you can understand it as a, a hedge against the system. I trust smart people buy it, so I just own some. And if you're comfortable with that, great. But if you're like me and you're curious and you want to know what you invested in, know that you have some learning to do. There is a learning curve here because this is a wholly new thing. And what most people don't realize is that they don't actually understand what money is. Um, I know I didn't understand it before Bitcoin. So there's a little bit of an unlearning and relearning process, like start from first principles, what function does money serve in society? What makes good money? Why was gold money? Okay, now why is Bitcoin good money? Like that sort of arc is important to truly understanding it. But again, just follow your nose. Um, yeah, that's that. Should I, should I go into awesome. no, that? That's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I feel like nothing like skin in the game propels you to learn more. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to close just talking about how you can purchase Bitcoin and, and kind of what vehicles are at your disposal there. Yeah. So assuming most of your viewers are in the U.S. since you're talking about U.S. equities market, um, there's a ton of different ways to buy Bitcoin in the U.S. I'll point you to first and foremost to Swan. Um, that's where I work. So I'm biased, full disclosure. Um, but that's swanbitcoin.com slash my last name, Quitem, Q-U-I-T-T-E-M. If you go there, you'll get $10 for the Bitcoin if you sign up. And what Swan is, again, is just an easy way to get started buying Bitcoin, it's safe, it's secure, low fees. It's just like limp in, start buying. And what we offer is a dollar cost average, an automatic dollar cost average thing. So you set up your plan every week or every month, you buy X amount of dollars worth. So you buy $500 a month, $50 a week, you know, whatever you're into, whatever you're into, connect your bank account, hit go, and it just automatically buys for you. Um, I think that's the right approach to buy Bitcoin because volatility um, is high. And so if you dollar cost average, you actually smooth out the volatility. Your average cost basis is an average versus, um, you know, you went all in on day one and then it dropped, right? And the other question people bring up, and this is a fair question, let's say you want to allocate $10,000 to Bitcoin. Should you do that today? Or should you put $1,000 a month for 10 months? So how do you approach that? And uh, for most people who are not sophisticated investors, just dollar cost average by X amount per month. But if you're slightly more sophisticated, I think what you should actually do is put 50% of what you're planning to invest today immediately um, and then dollar cost average the rest. So 
maintain ten thousand dollars is a fantastic position. I, I would not feel I'm buying more than I've ever bought per month right now. And so and so is everyone I know. And so don't feel like you missed it at ten thousand. This thing hasn't even started yet. Um, that's that. So Swan, that's my first choice because we have the lowest fees. It's easy. It's automated, and you protect yourself from the emotional ups and downs of investing. Because, as you probably know, humans are inherently bad at investing. We want to buy when it's going up, and we want to sell when it goes down. And obviously, you want to do the opposite. And setting up an automated plan sort of protects you from yourself. Um, other other places to buy. Um, Coinbase has the uh, has a name that a lot of people have heard. I'm not actually aligned to Coinbase because um, as a business, they're not really aligned to Bitcoin's long-term success. They have very high fees, but to be fair, it's a nice product. It's easy to use. Um, people trust it, but I would, if you don't use Swan, I would use Cash App, which is owned by Square. Um, it's an app just like Venmo in case you don't have it and they offer Bitcoin. Um, the fees are like 30 to 50% more than Swan, but they're still decent. And you can, you can buy on, on Cash App on your phone. Um, yeah, those are probably the two I would choose. If you are a, you know, super nervous about this, you want to dip your toes in, there is an institutional product called uh, GBTC, which I do not personally hold, but I'm pretty sure you can get this on your Fidelity account or whatever brokerage you use. And that's a, it's kind of like an ETF. It's not an ETF and you'll pay a premium on your Bitcoins, but you know, for some people that gives them a little extra peace of mind limping in. Um, I don't recommend doing that. I recommend holding it yourself, but you know, dip your toes in and keep learning. Yeah, that's awesome. I love the automatic dollar cost averaging for Swan. That, that's so great. Cause as you said, volatility sucks and the best way to kind of uh, stop it is uh, dollar cost averaging. Uh, this has been a fantastic conversation, Brandon. Uh, thank you so much. Dude. Thank you, Ben. That was awesome. Hope it was useful for uh, the people on the other side of the bow. I'd like to think we're closely aligned here, and I think we will be eventually. And so, if anyone's, you know, if anyone liked this conversation, come say hello. I'm happy to answer any questions. Absolutely, and I would say also, like, I feel like the kind of value in growth investing communities and Bitcoin communities, there's this like false rumor that they're at war, uh, but I think they're fundamentally compatible. I mean, I think a lot of what you talked about today, it's it's the same idea. If you follow a story, you figure out um, what's building the ecosystem and you invest accordingly. So you're, you're doing important work there. And I, th I think, um, yeah, so I just want to say thanks for doing that. Thanks for bringing me on a little bit outside of my typical Bitcoin podcast circuit and um, honored to be the Bitcoin guy for you here. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of Stock Talking and read a blog with my latest trade recommendations, market commentary, and more, visit postcoronastocks.com. Thank you.